Anna Nicole Smith's death has prompted a firestorm of controversy about many things, including the appropriate use of methadone. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Michael Carlton. Dr. Carlton is a practicing internist and addiction medicine specialist in Phoenix. He has detoxed over 30,000 patients. In addition to these duties, he is associate professor for the Maricopa Psychiatric Residency Training Program. I'm curious about your take in terms of methadone in today's culture. First of all, when I first got involved in addiction medicine uh, 14 years ago, I came into addiction and became uh, uh, indoctrinated in addiction in really a program that was very, very 12-step based. And what what they said you needed is you needed God, you needed 12 steps, and you needed your big book. And if you had those things, you were clearly capable of going on to uh, do well. If you didn't have those things or if you had anything else under that, uh, you weren't either going to do well or you had a bunch of extra stuff that was just loose baggage, including medications to treat addiction. Many times when I found when I would send my patients out, whether these were some of the earlier medications we would use to try and help them with their addiction or even simply things like antidepressants, people would come back from their uh, sponsors in their home group meetings and say, oh, I stopped my Prozac. Well, why is that? Because my sponsor said I didn't need it. And so while AA does not have a stand on medication, in fact, if you look in what's called the big book, the book with the 12 steps that AA puts out, that Alcoholics Anonymous puts out, it clearly says in there that they believe that medicine holds the key to the cure of addiction. And they're still holding out for that. And I'm still holding out for that too, but right now we just haven't gotten there. Well, I'm biased actually against methadone because I see at least in the methadone treatment clinics a very uh, for-profit driven sort of mentality where the patients that I've seen uh, may not really have uh, been the right patients for methadone. How do you see the commercialization of methadone in addiction? We've been using methadone now for about 60, a little over 60 years to treat people with uh, opiate dependence. I personally think that methadone is a good drug The problem with methadone is is the restrictions in which it has to be given. It has to be given in a treatment center. So it doesn't matter what you do for a living. It doesn't matter what your license entails. You as a practicing clinician cannot prescribe methadone to somebody to help them with their addiction. They have to go to a treatment center. I live in Phoenix, Arizona. In Phoenix, we have a a population in the metropolitan area of about 2.5 million. There are 28 methadone treatment programs in the city. Not only do all the patients who go there know where they are, but all the drug dealers know where they are. Wow. My patients come all the time to me and say, look, I need to get off of this. When you say why, they say, every day I go there, somebody asks me, can they sell me my, their methadone? Can they buy my methadone from me? Or would I like to trade my methadone for something else that they have? And so we put these people into settings where they're hanging out with a bunch of other addicts, they go there, the dealers are there. And so it's not necessarily that the drug is bad, but the way that the system is required to function under the, under the way the law is written really becomes very restrictive. Now, apparently, Anna Nicole Smith was on methadone for chronic pain. Um, how is that different, the use of methadone in treating pain versus to detox or to keep someone on methadone maintenance for addiction? If you're getting methadone because you have a history of problems with of abuse or dependence on um, narcotics, then you have to go to a methadone treatment center, and they're the only ones who can prescribe that. On the other hand, if you have patients who have pain, anybody who has a DEA license and can write for a controlled substance can write for methadone. 
it's the same thing as writing for Percocet or writing for hydrocodone or writing for the pain patches like fentanyl or anything else. So anybody who has a DEA license can write for it. The only caveat is you have to say that I'm using methadone for pain on the prescription, and you really do need to be able to clearly document that use in your chart. Now, if we look at the chemical nature of methadone, um, is it different than other opiates? Why was methadone as selected as the, the treatment 60 years ago for opiate addiction? The reason it was selected for the treatment of opiate addiction is that if you look at almost all of the narcotics that are available, they all have very short half-lives. If you remember that the half-life, Leslie, is how much time the drug stays in your system. A drug with a really long half-life stays in your system for a long time. A drug with a short half-life doesn't stay there very long at all. And because methadone was chosen to be used in people with opiate addiction, what you want to get people away from is the frequent use of a medication that continuously rewards that person by getting them high. If I'm a heroin addict, and again, 60 years ago, the primary narcotic that was being abused was heroin. If I'm a heroin addict, I'm going to have to use three or four times every day. Why? Because heroin has a very short half-life. Within four, six, eight hours of the time I last used, enough of this has gone out of my system that I may start having withdrawal. We wanted to move our patients away from that, and so they got a nice long-acting drug where, number one, is I don't have to give it to people to take home. That's why people go into the methadone treatment programs Monday through Saturday when they're first there. They go in once a day, they can take it once a day, and that will keep them out of withdrawal for an entire 24 hours, and then they can be redosed again the next day, decreasing the amount of, of narcotic that's available for patients to either trade or to sell or to abuse. I think a very common problem uh, in primary care is the patient that you may think is on either an inappropriate amount of opiates or they're, they're taking their medicines not as prescribed. Certainly a lot of press about Oxycontin lately. Um, you practice primary care as well. How, how can you help the primary care doc or peers deal with the situation in the office? Remember for us, Leslie, we were all taught that you never give narcotics for any kind of chronic pain. And it wasn't that long ago that we were in residency. And that was just sort of the dogma. If you break your leg today, you can have your narcotics. But if the pain is going on for more than several months, I'm sorry we have to cut you off because you might get addicted. That's a nice in theory. But what happens is that if you look at the data for long-term use of narcotics, somewhere between 90 and 97% of people will never become addicted to the medications. People who use these medications long-term will all become physiologically dependent, and if they stop, they'll have withdrawal. But the vast majority of these people will never become addicted. They don't abuse their medications. They're not overusing it. They're not buying their prescriptions on the Internet or, buying their, or, or shopping at multiple hospitals, emergency rooms, seeing multiple doctors. The number of patients that we tend to think about because they're always brought to our attention seems to be high, but really it's a small percentage of that population. So are there alternatives to methadone in terms of detoxing people from opiates? Yes, there are. Um, and the, the, the biggest one is called Suboxone or Subutex. The generic name for the active ingredient in this is buprenorphine. Buprenorphine, like methadone, is another drug that's got a very long half-life, so you don't have to dose it very frequently. And it stays in the system for a long time. And since it stays in the system for 24, 36 hours, you can keep people out of withdrawal. And so they can, again, be witnessed if you want to do witnessed uh, therapy. Alternatively, because you do not have to prescribe Suboxone or Subutex through a methadone treatment program, 
I can give a patient a prescription for this. They can take it home. The reason that I think that's an advantage is that when I have a patient who is driving maybe 20 minutes to a or 30 minutes to a methadone treatment center every single morning and then 20 or 30 minutes back before so that they can be at home to get their kids up to take them to school you're t- and they have to wait 20 or 30 minutes in line, you're talking about an hour to an hour and a half out of that person's time every day just to get their methadone for medication. If they're spending an hour to an hour and a half every day doing that, that's an hour to an hour and a half they can't do other things with like going to see a counselor, like going to a 12-step meeting, like coming to our office and being seen in an intensive outpatient group. You don't have to do that with, with Suboxone or Subutex. You can give them the prescription, which frees up a lot of time for our patients to participate in, in treatment and other forms of therapy that in the long term are really the thing that gives them recovery. Can any physician prescribe Suboxone? Suboxone has a limited use. Any physician who has a DEA license can apply for a waiver from the Substance and Mental Health Services Administration to, a, to prescribe Suboxone or Subutex. What is required is the following. Number one is, again, you have to have a DEA license without restrictions. Number two is you have to be certified by the American Society of Addiction Medicine or by the American Academy of Addiction Psychiatry or by the American Society of Osteopathic Addiction Medicine. If you are certified by any of those three organizations, then you don't need any other training. If you are not certified, then there is an eight-hour course that you can offer, and this is offered all around the country. Uh, there's an eight-hour course that you can take, and after completing that eight-hour course, you are able to apply for the waiver. Uh, so we certainly have methadone as, as an option. Uh, Suboxone is an option. What about other ways of detoxing people from opiates? Well, remember that when our patients are detoxing off of alcohol, off of benzodiazepines, those are things that, we, that really worry us because even though patients usually don't feel that bad, People can die when they come off of that. If you look at patients who historically, before the, before the invention of benzodiazepines and other sedative hypnotics like that, people who would go into delirium tremens had a 40 to 60% uh, probability that they were going to die. Today, we don't really have that. We, we don't see nearly as many people with those problems. And on the other hand, with opiates, while they're not life-threatening, nobody dies from opiate abuse. What I tell patients all the time, but yeah, it'll make you wish you were dead. When you're coming off of opiates, whether it's a prescription medication like, again, like Percocet or Vicodin or OxyContin or a non-prescription illicit drug like heroin, you just feel really crappy. You feel like you have a bad case of the flu. You have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Your body aches, your joint aches. You're having muscle cramping. You get sweats. In fact, they've they've measured this, and people can lose a liter and a half of sweat an hour while they're going through withdrawal. Their eyes water, their nose runs, they're sick to their stomach, they have nausea, they may be vomiting, they have loose stool and diarrhea. So the only real thing that becomes problematic for people coming off of opiate withdrawal is making sure that they don't get dehydrated. Because of that, you can certainly do detoxes without opiate-type medications. So just to recap what you've said, opiate withdrawal may make you wish you were dead, but it's not going to kill you, Um, unlike alcohol withdrawal or barbiturate withdrawal, for example. Right, exactly. Now, the mainstay, in fact, I think this is the mainstay of of withdrawal, even when I'm using medicines like methadone or Subutex or Suboxone, is clonidine. Clonidine is, as you know, an antihypertensive, but it works on the alpha-2 presynaptic receptor within the nervous system. And by doing that, it slows down the outflow track of uh, neurologic hyperactivity. Remember that what's causing withdrawal 
is either an upregulation or a downregulation of receptors within the central nervous system. In the case of heroin, these are depressant drugs, and so your, your system is kind of priming itself to be overreactive because it's so used to being held back by the heroin or by the Oxycontin or Percocet. Once you take that narcotic away, now the system is in hyperdrive, and it's all neurologic hyperactivity. So clonidine works on the presynaptic receptor to decrease the outflow so that the blood pressure doesn't go up as high, so there's less cramping, less nausea, less vomiting, uh, less diarrhea. You don't feel like your skin's crawling all over the place. Your nose is not running all the time. Your eyes are not watering. So it does work to make you feel more comfortable. Great. Well, I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Michael Carlton. We have been discussing the withdrawal and detox from medications like opiates and methadone. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.